Hello, everyone, and welcome to Minute 14 of Season 3 of Movie Rob Minute, the daily podcast, where we yippee our way through the 1988 Bruce Willis action movie, Die Hard, one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me once again today on this lovely Thursday in the middle or end of July, which I'm hopefully traveling around New England at this point on my way to Boston from Bangor. Who knows? Maybe if my plans haven't changed by that point, who knows? So joining me today is Alan Sanders of the Wild Ride. Welcome back, Alan. Thanks, buddy. Love to be back here. And uh, if you're in Boston, uh, one of my daughters, actually my third daughter down, is uh, lives in Boston with a roommate after getting out of college and does international travel plans for a corporation there and is loving being in the Northeast of the United States, getting a chance to see some of the historical stomping grounds of the original 13 colonies. Cool. Sounds like fun. So I'm envious of you trudging around up there because I have yet to be able to make a point of getting up there and doing a, a historical tour. The last time... Uh, I'm, so I'm not doing a historical tour. <laughs> I know you're not, but I've wanted to. Uh, when I was younger, I had no care for the history of this country or the, the founding of the nation or all the movers and shakers we were forced to learn in school. And now I'm jealous beyond belief that my daughter lives in one of the cities that was so instrumental in uh, the formation of our nation. And one day I'm going to do one of the they've got different tours where you can go to different specific patriotic, you know, U.S. history kind of locations and just kind of walk in the same footsteps of George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. I think that'd be really cool. Right. I mean, I was I was I was looking up like what type of things I can maybe do there and stuff like that. And I, I found something really cool that's it's called the Freedom Trail. Yeah, yeah, which, yeah. That's it. Yeah. So I, if I have time, hopefully later today, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be on the Freedom Trail. Well, who knows? I, I saw a bunch of cool things that are in Boston. You have the Freedom Trail. You have the USS Constitution, which would be really cool to see. There's the uh, the the uh, Ted Kennedy Institute for the U.S. Senate. There's the JFK Presidential Museum. Unfortunately, there are no games in Fenway, Fenway today, so I won't be able to, to take a look at that. And there's also the New England Holocaust Museum. So, I mean, I'll, if I need to find something to do, I'll, I'll find something to do there. I'm not, not too concerned about it. There's you know. plenty to do. And uh, yeah. even if you get a chance, walk around Faneuil Hall and some of the historic cobblestone streets. You might even get a chance to see the location that on the outside was used for the, uh, the, the 80s sitcom Cheers. Ooh. Ah, that's right. I can maybe go to the – well, as you're saying, the bar is not there. Well, it's called the – I think it's – It's I don't called, know Cheers. It's called, called yeah. Cheers. But it looks the same on the outside from the show, but obviously completely different inside. Oh, okay. All right. So, I mean, I'm not going to find Norm on the, on the, no, on the you, stool there. Well, you might find somebody who thinks they're Norm, but uh, it won't look like the set that you're used to on the television show. Right. So I'll just go there and I'll say, hey, Norm, pass the beer nuts. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> little known fact – <laughs> no, that's Cliff. That's Cliff. That's true. That is, Cliff, you're right. You're right. You're I, right. I would Cliff. love to have Cliff Cliff on this show. You know, the the, the show would probably go even longer than than when you and I are talking. But you know, <laughs> it would be entertaining. Not that not that when we talk, it's not entertaining. But true. you know, be very I different. So. I I think so too. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, minute fourteen begins with John finishing his compliment and ends with John trying to actually change the subject. So yesterday we were talking about the fact that, you know, John is in uh, Holly's office. Takagi brought him in there to catch uh, Ellis uh, uh, snorting a little uh, white powder. Mm -hmm. And, you know, had a few little awkward moments there. And so John then says to Takagi, you, you throw quite a party. 
right? And he's still holding the picture of John Jr. at the same time. He's looking, he's looking at the picture, trying to figure out like what's the, you know, why is there only a picture of my son as opposed to where's the picture of me? You know, I, I, I wonder exactly. I wonder if 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 that if if the character is supposed to be thinking that at this point. You know, is is he trying to is John McClain thinking like what's going on right now with with my family? You know, how do I how do I resolve these issues? Yeah, yeah, we talked a little bit about this yesterday, and was it yesterday or two days ago? It was yesterday. (laughs) It felt like two days ago. It was so long. Um, Seriously, (laughs) I like what you said because I never really thought about it. Is had his son changed much since he last saw him, or is it just he hasn't even seen his son in six months, and it's shocking him? The six months may have gone by. In other words, when you first let, I, I guarantee we're going to learn later. He thought this wasn't going to be a long, a long-term deal. She'll come crawling back. I don't need to do anything. Right. That's what Argyle said last week. You know, you know six months has gone by and you might as a, as a dad who's been so heads down, focused on my day job, I'm a cop. I'm dealing with the worst of humanity. I've got all this caseload. I've got all this stuff to do. He hasn't maybe he didn't realize how much he's even missed the sight of his own son until seeing the picture. Right. Right. But also there's the idea that okay, here he's in her office. She's she she's moved in. You know. He sees that 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 it's comfortable for her here even though she's not there. You know, he's looking around, he's seeing her stuff. You know, what you know, the stuff we talked about uh in in yesterday's episode, you know, where, where he saw the Santa Claus and the gingerbread house and stuff like that. I don't know if those are family things or those are just, you know, new things that that, that she brought because it's, you know, right now we're 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 in the holiday season. I, I don't know. You know, is it that he's looking at this stuff and saying, Okay, she's a little she's more comfortable here than than I'm comfortable with. You know, I think hmm. that might be what, what he's sort of saying here. You know, he's looking at the picture and he's he's holding the picture of his son for quite a while. Now, I mean, we talked about this uh, two weeks ago. You, with, I, I talked about it with, with Jay, with the whole idea of, of the various photos that are there. There's only one picture of the family with John. There are numerous pictures of, you know, the kids. You know, the, the, around her desk, there are a lot of pictures of the kids, but there is only one picture of all of them. You know, and... I mean, again, this is the 1980s. So, how much did he really communicate with with his kids over the course of the six months? I mean, we, from what we understand, he barely communicated with Holly. Right. No, you I know, mean, when you they think didn't have fi- time, they didn't have fi- FaceTime. There was no Zoom. You know that. You know, nowadays we live in a world. I mean, come on, you and I are are across the across the world from each other, and and we're able to talk and see each other and and have this this you know this conversation. But 34 years ago, 30, yeah, 34 years ago, they didn't have that, mm-hmm. you know, and right. long distance calls, even if, even if Nakatomi's paying for it, you know, they weren't, they were expensive. I, I had a friend, I grew up in, in Detroit, you know, not far from where, where you grew up also, but, you know, I had a friend in Windsor and I used to call him and talk to him. And at one point my parents said to me, do you realize that we're paying international phone, phone call for an international phone call for you to talk to your friend that you saw in school earlier today? You know, and as a kid, obviously, I didn't think about it. And nowadays, it's completely different. But, you know, I, I felt bad after that because the, the idea wasn't that, you know, I was trying to, to run up my parents' bill. But, 
No, I think you're absolutely right. I think people need to remember if they're a little younger watching this movie, maybe for the first time. That's exactly right. And and if a cop in New York, he was probably working 12 on, 12 off. The last thing he's going to do is spend every night on the phone long distance calls to L.A. He may have only had a handful of phone calls in the last six months on the weekend, maybe. You know, right. it's something that we he certainly wasn't emailing every day. He wasn't you know FaceTiming or sending snap pictures or text messages. It would have been a dedicated long distance phone call. And it, it, it's a, it's an interesting moment to see how Bruce Willis does convey with the body language almost a sense of sadness. It's it, it, it's definitely not anger. It's not joy. It's almost a little melancholy of right. you know, missing, not, not just maybe missing his son, but maybe he's starting to realize, oh, she's not going to just come back. This isn't, you know, I've convinced myself for the last six, six months, she's, she'll be miserable. She'll miss me. She'll come crawling back. Doesn't look like that's the case. Right, but that's his ego talking with, with all of that. The idea is that, I mean, but if you think about it, I mean, here, his wife got a very high-level executive position in a company. You know, this isn't, you know, she, she, she's got a lot of responsibilities. You know, so for him to completely dismiss it is also somewhat problematic. I mean, it it says something about, about their relationship, the fact that, you know, even six months ago in July, when they were discussing this or fighting about it or whatever it is, again, we don't know how long she's working at Nakatomi. It's possible that she was, you know, she had to have some qualifications in order to get this type of job. So was she working for Nakatomi in New York and then they decided to move her to L.A.? Was she working for other companies and, you know, then got the opportunity to go to Nakatomi? It, again, it doesn't make much of a difference, but it adds so much more depth to the the relationship between the two of them. You know, I mean, I can talk from my own personal experience, you know, in my relationship with my wife, we, we discuss all of these things, you know, we, you know, if, if, if there are conflicts between, you know, both of our days. So we try and find some way to do it. Obviously, this is a little more complicated because here we're talking about, you know, a much larger, a longer commute. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but still, the, the idea is, is that that in and itself says that they were already having problems with their marriage beforehand. Right, right. That this was a decision, and and we'll get to that later. This was a decision, and I don't know if I'll be on. I think you'll be on. With, obviously, you'll be here. Um, I hope so. She makes a point later <laughs> of this was this was a chance to this was a huge opportunity. And right. I was like, yeah, and you took it at the expense of the family. And she's like, no, I mean, it's it, that's a that's a double edged sword. You could have come out here just as easily. Right. No, but that also again, I'll, obviously, I'll talk about that uh, next week when when that comes up. Or, or maybe it's in two weeks, but but that also shows that that she isn't taking into consideration uh, his job. You know, the fact that he's been a cop for eleven years. You know, so you know it's it's a it, it it's it's nice to think about all of these things. We'll we'll never have true answers to it because it's it's right. all speculation. But but we're able to see that that there is something wrong with with their relationship. That, what I that do like, led we'll, we'll, to that led to this type of situation. What I do like, and and I love this conversation, is it does not necessarily set him up as a good guy or a villain. And the same for her; they both have things that they've both been sort of selfish. Yes. And what I love about this story is the crucible of what they're going to go through is what actually helps to resolve their individual selfishness because they now realize 
it's not just missing you across the country. It's you could be taken away forever if this madman gets his way. Right. Correct. But again, we know seven years from now when the third movie comes out, something else has happened. You know, but we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll get there eventually. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I'm I'm going to stay encapsulated with this story. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, just looking at, at Die Hard 2, which takes place two years from now, we see how the events of this film did bring them together. So that mm-hmm. it's nice. That's one of the great things about Die Hard 2 is you see the effect that Die Hard 1 had on them, on their relationship, on their lives and all that stuff. But we'll we'll get there eventually, eventually in, you know, in a season or two from now. Not uh, not this season. You know, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll stay away from there for now. So then John continues to say. So he started saying you throw quite a party. I didn't realize they celebrated Christmas in Japan. Okay. Now, did you know that? Did you know that they don't celebrate Christmas in Japan? I thought I thought Israel was the only place in the world that they don't celebrate Christmas. You know, oh, yeah, I, I mean that was a big, <laughs> that was a big thing about uh, even in World War Two talking about, you know, if Japan were to have won World War II, that, that, you know, they don't believe in Christmas. They don't believe in Christianity. It's a different religious country. So Christianity wasn't a thing for Japan. And so it's still kind of a dig at that point. I mean, the 80s are a lot closer to World War II now than we are to the 80s, which is kind of sad. That's true. But um, (laughs) I thought this was another one of those little – not necessarily a, a, a intentionally dig, but it is a little bit of a dig back at the at the at the boss. Uh, you can sense a little resentment that Holly didn't come back to him, and maybe it's because things are so good at this company. Maybe I can blame the the corporation. Maybe I can throw a dig at the CEO. That's why she didn't come back, you know. And it could be his frustration, sort of letting that slip out and say, oh, "I didn't think they celebrated Christmas in Japan," and I, that's why I love it because the CEO is so deft. At knowing it's a dig, I'll let you get to it. But his response is 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 a perfect way to ratchet the tension back down. Yeah, completely. But but before before we get there, the so the idea also is is that you know maybe what he's saying is is why are you making her come in on a Saturday night for a party? Well, you know, if you don't celebrate, if you don't say no, but if you don't, if the Japanese don't celebrate Christmas. So why are you having this this elaborate party for all of your American employees and your your Japanese employees in L.A. on a Saturday night? So maybe he's saying, you know, because you don't celebrate it, so it's less important for you that that well, you're forgetting your, your, your workers. Friday. No, we didn't. Yes, we did. No, we, we didn't. did yesterday. No. Yes, we did. No. <laughs> Yes, we did. You can't remember. We talked about this, and you, go, you know what? I'm wrong. You, you said you got with another friend. You're like, yeah, no, you know, that, I'm wrong. Yes, <laughs> I was wrong that it's. That I said it's Christmas Eve. I was it is saying, Christmas Eve. and Christmas Eve in 1988 was Saturday night, but not 88. It was 87. No, that that we haven't proven. That that I'm still waiting for proof. I. <laughs> you can go back to the tape. I I apologized for thinking that this was. Um, e- uh, Christmas Eve Eve. This is Christmas Eve. You are you are so focused that the that the release year is the year it took place. <laughs> because things take place in the future; they don't take place in the past. <laughs> <laughs> no, movies can never shift around on the timeline. They have to only exist in the moment, <laughs> unless they're dealing with time travel. <laughs> Oh so you're saying, so you're saying there's a time travel aspect to Die Hard. Well, you no, know, I'm not saying. That. <laughs> no, 
I am calling into question some of the logic that's going through your head, but no, I'm not. No, Alan, Alan it's so much fun <laughs> with you. Seriously. <laughs> Seriously. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> okay, so so we don't know whether it's 1987 or 1988. It's it's still up in the air. We haven't been able to prove either. Okay, is that fair? I can guarantee you this. It's not Saturday or Sunday. It, even in the United States, it's not. If it's a work day, they're not all being – I can see them all coming in for a party somewhere other than work on a Saturday. You rent out a ballroom or you rent out a, a hotel somewhere. But, no, this is definitely the end of the work day, and they're just rolling it into the end-of-the-year holiday party. All right. We'll, we'll have to see. Well, I'll accept that for now, but, you know, I still have another – 120, 117 episodes or 118 episodes to, to try and figure that one out. I will keep that okay, debate well, up. Luck to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what, one of the things I found is is, is that uh, we're, we're talking about Christmas in Japan. So in Japan, it actually has become a secular celebration. Okay. That has become more popular in Japan. A lot of people... They, you know, families spend time together during on, on Christmas Eve. They sometimes will exchange gifts, but not under the pretense of it being, you know, a religious holiday. There apparently was a lot of advertising in uh, in the 70s that they were trying to convince people in 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 uh, in Japan that they should go to KFC on Christmas as a national custom. <laughs> so that that worked, I guess, you know. <laughs> now apparently it's it it has it really took because in the 50 years since that has taken that has happened you you need to to make a very very early reservation in order to go to a place that serves chicken on christmas eve in japan okay so yeah i, I don't know as, <laughs> as as i mentioned to to you earlier this week for for me as a jew when i when i grew up in in you know, in the States. So Christmas Eve was always the time we went to the movies. You know, there are all these jokes that, that you know, Jews go out for Chinese on uh, on, on Christmas Eve. We never did that, but we went to the movies. I, I remember seeing some, I remember seeing Clue on Christmas Eve in 1985. Um, mm -hmm. I think I saw DOA also with, uh, with, with Dennis Quaid. I think that was the movie, one of the movies I saw on Christmas Eve. Oh, that was a good flick. Him and Megan. Uh, and uh, Meg, Meg Ryan. Uh, Meg Ryan, Ryan. Yeah. yeah, I think they were they were really married at the time, and then they. they played, I like, think they were. I think yeah. they were still dating at the time. When were they? You okay, know, I, whatever. I, I it was. They were, a, they were a thing. Yes, they were a thing. They were a thing. And I forgot that. That didn't he super glue himself to her so that way they'd be yes, stuck he did. Him, literally, yes, he did. So she couldn't. She couldn't run away from him. Yeah. So wow. as you you alluded to earlier, Takagi's response to John's statement is great because he goes, "Hey, we're flexible." Pearl Harbor didn't work out, so we got you a tape decks. Which what he's basically saying is we couldn't destroy you by air, so we destroyed you, you know, with technology, which which is so ironic when you think about it today. You know, tape decks weren't what really you know uh, mess with people. It's it's everything nowadays when you look at it at how the you know how social media and and cell phones and you know everything has completely changed. Um, everything in the world, but mm -hmm. you know, you know, you you can say that that you know we are now in the matrix because of all of this. <laughs> it, it, it's a great line though, because the joke even in the '80s of how 
so much of the technology, so much of the consumerism was coming out of Japan or China or Taiwan, the idea of these Asian countries that were going to win the American market. They couldn't beat us in battle, but they were going to win at the, at the, at the cash register. Well, and that, that had a lot to do with the fact of, of all the uh, reparations that they needed to make that, you know, they had to pay America after the war and then America felt bad for them and decided to start giving them all these contracts. And then they showed that they had the technology to, uh, you know, to make all of these things. Mm -hmm. So that works. So here he mentions Pearl Harbor. Obviously, I know you know a lot about Pearl Harbor. Most people know a lot about Pearl Harbor. You know, Pearl Harbor was the deadliest attack on American soil up until that point, And that that obviously stood for for 60 years until, uh, you know, 9-11 changed that. There were 2,335 people that were killed on the attack on Pearl Harbor, and there were 1,143 wounded. So that, that that's it's a lot, especially thinking back at the fact that this took place, you know, in 1941. So do you know do you know how many ships were were lost? Um, I know. Well, they were all put out of commission, but uh, I think four of the five major carriers were taken out, um, if I'm if I remember correctly, and several uh, support vessels because someone thought it would be a good idea to park most of the fleet at Pearl Harbor at the time of the attack. Well, I mean, well, they didn't know there was going to be the attack, but the, <laughs> the Japanese were very smart from that perspective. So well, I say that because the, in, historically there was a lot of intelligence that said. You shouldn't amass your forces all together, but traditionally, that's just what the Navy did. Yeah. But there were already warnings of, like, we don't want to put all our eggs in one basket just in case. But no one's going to come to Pearl Harbor. Come on. <laughs> it's <laughs> no. safe. It's safe. <laughs> so there were 21 uh, American ships that were either damaged or completely destroyed. Okay. All but three of them were, were repaired and returned to service. Okay. So obviously, you have the, the uh, Arizona. Which, yeah, that one's... which uh, there were 1,177 soldiers that died when, uh, on that one. You have the Oklahoma that, that had 429 that were killed. You have the West Virginia. Uh, there, there's a theme here with the names of, of all the battleships. <laughs> you have the West Virginia, which had 106 dead. The California, 100 dead. The Nevada, 60 dead. The Pennsylvania had only nine dead. The Tennessee had five dead, and the Maryland had four dead. So it's really interesting that all the battleships are named after states. Mm -hmm. You know, then there was a a former there was a decommissioned battleship named the Utah, which was also sunk, and there sixty four uh, so, uh, people were were killed. Then you had three cruisers. I'm not going to go into the names. Uh, four destroyers. Auxiliary, you had another five ships that were that were destroyed. So, I mean, that, that was a really big loss. And and looking back, the fact that America was able to come back from all these losses is just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they was, weren't decimated. You know, one of the stories, and we talked about Midway earlier this week. Ironic that the actor here was in the movie seventy, yeah. I think seventy two version Midway, um, not the remake, but the seventy six. Was it 76? I think it was 76. Was 72. But it was early 70s. Um, 
that they actually saw the profile of one of the aircraft carriers that they swore, I think it was the Yorktown, that they swore they had sunk. There's like, there's no way the Yorktown is pursuing us to Midway. And it was that the, the, the resolve, as the one admiral said, I think it was Yamamoto said, I fear like all we have done is awoken the sleeping giant. It's amazing mm-hmm. how that one attack just steeled the resolve of all Americans, and especially even in the military, that they were fixing an aircraft carrier on the move. They were saying, we're, we're, we can't leave it in dry dock. We got to get we got to get moving. We got to get mobilized. And they were literally repairing it yeah. on the high seas. It's amazing. Well, like, it's a, like, what, like what Scotty always does, you know? Yeah, exactly. The, the, you know, it still still works. <laughs> and I mean, there's there's a lot of movies. How many movies can you think of that 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 revol- revolve around the the story of Pearl Harbor? Oh, there's several, um, including the the old miniseries that came out back in the 80s, um, Pearl, um, which was a, a television miniseries. You've got the that, really bad. It, seven, it came out in 78. What what movie? Midway? Pearl. Pearl. Pearl, Pearl came out in 78. Oh, yeah. The the, the miniseries. Right. 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 Pearl, um, um, no, Midway was 76. I checked that. Midway is 76. OK. You had uh, Tora, 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 which yep. was a great movie. Mm-hmm. Um, 1970. Obviously, the really bad late '90s movie Pearl Harbor, with with what's his face? Oh my god, I can't think of it. Uh, ben Affleck. Ben Affleck. <laughs> yeah, that was 2001. Yeah, I I actually okay. like it. It's it's cheesy, but I like it. You know. Um, what other movies? There's there's two or three more that I, that are like in the edges of my periphery. I don't know if they just have moments of Pearl Harbor where they sort of like tell part of it or uh, all about Pearl Harbor. Uh, what else do you got on your list? Because I'm okay. assuming you've got so, a full list. Of course I do. Of course I do. So you, first of all, John Ford did a documentary about it in 1943 called December 7th, the movie, which I've seen. It uses a lot of live footage from there. It's it's interesting. It's not great, but it's interesting. Then you have From Here to Eternity, which takes place uh, right. during the, the, the attack. Uh, you have In Harm's Way with uh, John Wayne from 1965. Then you have a movie called uh, Storm Over the Pacific, which came out in 1961, which which was actually a Japanese version of it. Okay, then uh, you mentioned Tora Tora Tora, Pearl. Uh, mentions here a whole bunch of, of TV series. I'm not going to go into all of them, but but I love that Voyagers. Did you ever see Voyagers? Mm. It was a time travel uh Show in 1982 with John Eric Exum. No, do you remember who John Eric Exum was? Nope. He was an actor who was playing around with a gun and had a blank and and killed himself accidentally in 1984. I think that happened. He was he was on the TV show Cover Up, which was a you know about all these like models and stuff like that. He was like a bodyguard there and stuff like that. So there was a there was a TV show in 1982 called uh, Voyagers. Which was about a little kid who accidentally gets pulled into a to work with a time traveler who has to go through time and change things, you know, make basically make make things right that 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 go wrong. Okay, but what they do there is, is so the kid is a uh, history buff, so he's actually able to help this time traveler who's like a pirate who lost his guidebook and doesn't know what's supposed to really happen. And I mean, they only had like one or maybe even two seasons of the the show, 
but it was a lot of fun for, you know, for me being a kid who loved history, you know, where they went to all these different places, you know, like they, the, the first episode, they, they have them show up in ancient Egypt and, you know, they, they're, they're standing on, on the, the, the side of the Nile and they're trying to figure out what went wrong. And then they realize that they have to take the basket with Moses and put it into the Nile, you know, in order <laughs> to like fix that. And then there's, they, they like have all these different, like in each, in each episode, I think there were like two different time periods that they were in. So it, it's just a fun show for people who like, you know, watching. It almost uh, like a precursor to Quantum Leap. Of course, but Quantum Leap, there you're in, he was in someone else's body. Right. You know, but stop uh, going yeah. and visiting these events and sometimes I guess trying to make sure that they happen correctly or whatever. Right. Correct. But, it, but, but in Quantum Leap, they were minor things, you know, they were, there were things that happened to everyday people like you and me. In this one, it was historical events, you know, like they had to help the Wright brothers create the plane, you know, like things like that. It's just, it's a lot of fun. It's a fun cool. thing. Then, then you have the, the Winds of War, you know, when you started talking yeah. before about the miniseries, that's the one I thought you were referring to, you know, the Herman Wook uh, Herman version Walker's of it. Winds of War, yes. Yes, yes 1984. that one too. Yeah. Um, then you have uh, uh, Midway, which came out just a few years ago in 2019 which started with the attack on Pearl Harbor, you know, before they get to Midway, because Midway was basically the, uh, the payback for it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So after John and Takagi make these comments, they, they, they both start laughing. And at this point, you know, we get Ellis who changes the subject and then it's mostly Ellis laughing, actually. Right. 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 I'm sorry. I, yeah. So basically, it's Ellis. More this obnoxious, over-the-top fake laugh than what Ellis does, and yet somehow you just know that's his person. That's just who he's, Ellis and is, he, and he's high. So, you mm -hmm. know. and then and then he he says, "All right, actually, it's kind of sort of a double celebration. We closed a pretty big deal today, and a lot of it was due to Holly. Am I right, JoJo?" Now, mm -hmm. that's very disrespectful. <laughs> He's calling his boss JoJo. <laughs> Not only that, but even in the background, when they do the reverse shot and you see John looking kind of still forlornly across the pictures and the desk, he slaps Takagi's arm like we're buds at a bar. Yeah, exactly. It makes me cringe every time. I almost feel like Takagi's like, don't touch me. Yeah. <laughs> just, just don't touch me. <laughs> if it's up to me, you're you're not going to be in this, in, in this business uh, after tonight. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> if it were up to me, <laughs> hey, what's with all the theatrics? I'm <laughs> put away the gun, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what am I, a method actor? Am I a method? <laughs> that may come up later in the season. It, it might, it might, it might. But we'll have to, we'll have to wait and see. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll have you back for those episodes. We'll see. I don't know. <laughs> I love the fact that the camera angle when it reverses and Ellis is explaining that and we get the slap, but the, you know, you've got your depth of field where obviously Takagi and Ellis are purposely a little out of focus and John McClane far left of the frame. And I love it. We're setting it up. He is far left of the frame, completely disconnected, looking the opposite direction. It's when they sense Holly walking in and the camera, she's so far away from John in the shot that she, the camera actually has to move to then put her on the far right side of frame yeah you can't visually get a better storytelling device that shows just how a fart how, how fart how apart <laughs> these two people are 
Yeah, they, they definitely are. There's, there's, it's great. Now, I remember when I first used to watch this, I, 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 you know, I didn't know the difference between uh, pan and scan and uh, widescreen. You know, so I would always watch pan and scan stuff. And then actually on, I think it was the DVD of Die Hard, they had a, a little featurette that explained the difference between pan and scan and, and widescreen. And it really opened my eyes. I was like, wow, I never even thought about the fact that, you know, of how they did that. You know, that they would zoom in and then move things or zoom out. Mm-hmm. They would zoom out, I think. Well, you couldn't fit both things on the screen because the television was four by three. So they would purposely, even though the camera may be fixed in the in the theatrical version, they would pan artificially to one actor versus the other, whoever was talking to make it look like they're the where the camera was, though it may have been a two shot on the big screen. You'd only see one at a time because the TV wasn't wide enough. Right. Exactly. So my dad nuts when when they started doing DVDs in 16 by 9 or widescreen he's like wait a minute it's not taking up the whole screen look at there's black bars at the top and the bottom (laughs) dad it's got to do that because you are get you're getting more of the picture getting what it's supposed to look like but our tv's not wide he goes no it should fill up the whole screen i'm like oh dad (laughs) (laughs) right but now everything is widescreen you know it's it's rare I find it annoying when I when I actually end up watching something that's you know four by three, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, why are the sides? <laughs> why are the black bars on the sides? You know what's crazy is we almost all of us have sixteen by nine aspect TVs, but then I'll watch or or stream a movie that's like two point three five to one, and you still get black bars because it's even a, a wider screen than the sixteen by nine ratio. Right. And I love I love I I. Yeah, I mean, the whole idea of having a home theater, home cinema, movies like this where you can just watch them over and over and over in a widescreen surround sound is a is a special time that you and I are getting to live in. Yes, for sure. There's there's really no question about that. And then we hear off in the distance, go ahead without me. I'll be I'll I'll be about four minutes. OK, which is really strange because I before doing research for this, I, I never noticed that that you can hear Holly in the background saying these things. You know, like, and why would you say four? Like, four minutes is a very strange number to give. You know, you'd either say, I'll be there in two minutes, I'll be there in five minutes. But to say four minutes, it sounds a little too exact. <laughs> you know, but, uh, and then uh, at this point, the, the, the music changes a little bit. We hear, like, a little tone that changes mm-hmm. as the two of them are, are seeing each other. You know, and, and then, you know, we hear in the background the, the laughing and sniffing of Ellis. You know, he constantly sniffs. This is great. What um, I liked about, I'm glad you brought up the the audible tone of the score because it initially the violin starts to 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 ratchet up almost to indicate tension, but then just as you're thinking, oh, okay, there's nothing between the two, they add two or three chimes, almost like magic, like a sense of something just happened. Something, yes. and they have connected eye to eye when that's happening. Yes. It gives us maybe a sense of hope. Maybe, maybe they're going to be able to get through whatever it was that separated them. And I right. liked it from a score perspective. Yes, I completely agree with you on that. But what's very interesting is, is that Holly is shocked that John is there. So, I mean, we talked earlier in the week that who ordered the ta- who ordered the limo? You know, apparently it wasn't Holly. Because <laughs> she wasn't expecting him to be here. You know? No. I mean, I guess she's lucky that she's she's holding on to a, a file of papers as opposed to holding on to Ellis or someone else. 
you know, walking into the into the office at that point. Well, and even if even if we go under the supposition that maybe she asked just to make sure he could make it, that doesn't mean knowing John that he would have taken the limo. Right. You know, I, I think she's doing a very good job of, of of looking like unexpected, but not horrified unexpected, more like took her breath away for a second. Like she wasn't she wasn't ready to see that just that moment, but it warms up very quickly. Right. Exactly. And then uh, she goes, John. And then have you met everyone? And then I love Takagi says, no, we've just been sticking him with spears. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, that was that's a very 80s kind of expression talking about that when you when you would go to a company or or someplace else and like, oh, sorry, have you met my husband? Oh, yeah, we've been sticking him with spears, you know, right. like mm-hmm. we've been we've been just asking him questions. We've been poking at him. We've been trying to, like, you know, making him uncomfortable until you showed up. Um, that's a that's a pretty typical expression of that day. Yeah, for sure. And and it, it works really well here. But it also shows the type of dynamic there is between Takagi and and Holly. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is a little more than a boss underling. You know, there's there's no like distance between them. Right. There's there's a warmth of they may. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not suggesting anything beyond just business. But no, 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 a, not at all. Neither am I. Familiarity that they are comfortable with one another. Yeah, for sure. And, and a, a business affection for one another. They they respect and appreciate each other. Right. And then and then he gives a little chuckle and says, of course he has. And then Takagi turns to to John and says she was made for the business. Tough as nails. Mm hmm. There is a, a, a moment here then, and I love, again, the camera work, because she's come close. They embrace. Well, no, we're not there still... yet. We're not there oh, okay. yet. We're, 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 we're getting there. We're getting there. No, because I, I wanted to talk about, uh, you know, the tough as nails. Do, do you know where that phrase comes from? <laughs> no, I would have never thought to look it up. <laughs> so first of all, it can be either a positive uh, statement or a negative one. So it's very True. ambiguous. You know, when you say someone is tough as nails, you could be giving them a compliment or you could be criticizing them at the same time. Okay. So when it's being used as a compliment, so it means that the person can handle any problem and continue to endure. Okay. When it's used as an insult, it can mean that the person is unfeeling, cold, or harsh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, obviously, the way that Takagi is saying this, he's he's saying it as a compliment, right? So this is That's a phrase. This is a phrase that that dates all the way back to the 1860s. Okay, it used to be that people are hard as nails, and then the it, people they, they would use that phrase, and then it it changed because uh, you know they just decided to. Someone changed it, and the you know the whole phrase. I wasn't able to find an exact reason why it changed, but it changed from hard as nails to tough as nails. You know, maybe they figured that nails are are harder than tough, uh, or tougher than hard. I don't know. Right? Maybe now again. Now, what what do you think the nails refers to? Well, I was always assuming the uh, obviously a nail like you would use to keep two pieces of wood together, like a, a hammer and nail. Right. Well, it could be could be both. It, there's two different nails. Nails. You have nails, you know, when you have a hammer nail, or you have nails on a finger. Right. I so, never thought of it as being as on a finger. Right. 
But part of the thing not is, a, not, is not this phrase, right? Exactly. But apparently, the the phrase could refer to either. You know, it's 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 based on the research I did. It's very unclear as to which they're talking about because huh. both can be bent. You know, you can bend a a, a nail with with a hammer. You know, and you know the your your fingernails aren't as hard. But, no. You know, but but they can be tough. So I don't know. You know, so yeah, I, I thought that was a little bit interesting to try to try to throw you off on that one. <laughs> and then she comes over and, and gives him a, a very awkward uh, hug and kiss, and she kisses him on the cheek, mm-hmm. which also goes back to okay, what is their relationship? You know, you know what I felt though. Uh, yeah, there's the awkwardness. We 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 obviously we know that we sense it. Bonnie Bedelia does a great job of of doing it. But before she moves in for the hug, she kind of almost does a half look to her right over her shoulder. And mm-hmm. I almost wonder how much of this is for show in front of the boss that she doesn't want to make it look like there may be more of a rift between the two of them. That we maybe I, – I always felt like she was doing it more for show and not wanting to do anything to create a, a scene in front of her boss. Right. Well, she looks very uncomfortable as she's walking over to him, you know. And and you know, but but again, the kiss on the cheek is is what what throws me off here. You know, here you haven't seen your spouse in six months. Okay, if you're trying to pretend that everything is okay, you don't give them a peck on the cheek. I mean, again, you don't you don't uh, you know you don't you don't have a powerful makeout session either. You know, there's there's no need for passion here, but you you'd still expect that 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 they would try to show. That okay, we did miss each other. The mm-hmm. peck on the cheek says, you know, we're friends. That's all it says. It does. It does add a layer of how many arguments have they had over the phone with maybe those handful of phone calls? How how pained is their relationship at this point? Exactly. Exactly. And at this point, she she says to him, I was hoping you made that flight. Now, I liked this line. Because it, it it shows that she is happy about the fact that he made the fight. She's glad that he's here. You know, again, she just gave him a peck on the cheek, but she's happy that, you know, that he's come to to L.A. Is she happy because he's come to see the kids? Is he happy because she's come? he's come to maybe try to patch things up? I don't know. You know, but she seems genuinely happy about the fact that, that, that he's there. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, uh, you know, the the moment is ruined by Ellis, who, you know, likes to ruin every moment in this movie. And he goes, show him the watch. <laughs> and he begins, <laughs> he, he continues to sniff. You know, he's he's still trying to get every little, you know, glimmer of Coke up that nasal passage. <laughs> well, did you notice uh, uh, before he says that, right after she kind of backs away to once again kind of force the framing to where... Ellis and Takagi become in between um, our, our, our main characters here. Mm-hmm. Ellis, as she, as her head pulls back, because her he's obscured as she comes into the frame for the hug. As yeah. she pulls back, you realize Ellis's demeanor has changed the minute she saw or he saw the kiss. Right. Regardless of it being on the cheek. And he is just giving John a death stare like, oh. You know what, Holly? I've had I I got my eye on her, and you're gonna mess this up. That's right. 
That's right. I, I, I see what you're talking about, the way that he's looking at him. Just, he's looking at him in a very I, defensive way or maybe even yeah. in an offensive way. You know, very but, much so. And then when the lighting has half his face obstructed a little, just his eyes are lit. It's it's very piercing. It's very much enemy. Uh, yeah. I'm going to take you down. I'm going to take yeah, you but down his, here. But his body movement is very strange because he's got his hands in his pocket and he like, you know, uh, he's moving like his waist. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like uh, he's doing a hula hoop or something like that. You know, he's doing the twist. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, there's a there is some nervous energy in him. He is uh, he's high. What do you expect? <laughs> but he's la- I mean, look at his eyes. His eyes are laser focused. Like, OK, yeah. it's my turn to show Holly that she may be uh, starting to feel some some something for her ex or and maybe in Hollis's mind ex, even though they're not divorced. They're obviously just separated. Right. Uh, Ellis is is going to use this moment to to get his first shot, and it's it's not the friendly barbs like Takagi was sh- was throwing back and forth with John. This is a definite. There is no other way to look at this line, but uh, as an as an offensive line. Yeah, completely. She so Holly says later, and then Ellis goes, "Oh come on, go on, show him. What are you embarrassed? You know, I love love the way he says that. What are you embarrassed?" <laughs> Why would she be embarrassed about it? It's not, you know, again, he's, 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 he's mixing to together go- social and, and business. You know, he's missing, mixing together business with pleasure here. But he's also, I think he's trying to goad her into doing it because he wants to flaunt. Look, your guy from New York, he can't afford a Rolex. We gave you one as a gift. Right. Right. Cause then he continues by saying, it's just a small token of our appreciation for all your hard work. Mm-hmm. It's a Rolex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I, I love John's response. I'm sure I'll see it later. <laughs> Meaning, uh-huh. stop bothering me. So what While you- he's giving that speech, the reverse angle over her shoulder back to John, and John sort of cuts just slightly his glance over to Ellis. Once again, the cop mode of like, you are so transparent, Ellis. I see right through you. Exactly. I'm not even going to allow you to get a rise out of me. You're so it's not even worth my effort right now. Right. It's kind of what John's giving that, that, that body language. Completely. <laughs> so what, what do you know about Rolexes? Well, I, I do know, especially in the eighties, they were considered pretty much the, the top end watch, at least that most people would have known by name. It, it, it was synonymous with being rich and ostentatious. Okay. Do you, do you, when do you think the Rolex company was started? Oh, probably centuries ago, probably well before 1700s or in the 1700s, maybe. No, no, no. 1905. 1905. Really? Yeah. Yep. Wow. Okay. I didn't know that. I thought I figured Rolex would be one of those watch companies that have been around since the invention of the watch. Yeah. So, so the 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 company was founded in in 1905, and they actually uh, registered the word Rolex as the brand name of its watches in 1908. And then they ended up actually changing the the name of the the company to the Rolex Watch Company Ltd. in 1915. And uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of history here. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. It's not uh, it's it's not that pertinent to what we're talking about here, anyway. But um, you know, it's as you said, it's become very very popular. And in the 80s, it it was a top tier 
type of uh, type of watch. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, and the company is still going very strong today. So here we're talking 117 years. That's pretty good for uh, a watch. I mean, I still remember the the you know the Timex commercials from the 80s. Mm-hmm. Takes a look in, keeps on ticking. And at this point, John decides to change the subject a little bit and says, "Is there a place where I could wash up?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's like, "I'm sweaty. I was just on a plane for four hours." <laughs> But it's also funny that 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 he's asking something like this in an office building. You know, obviously there there will be a place for him to wash up. You know, but you know, he normally you'd think he would wait until he gets to you know Holly's house in order to. You don't think so? Well, I was gonna say, growing up in that time frame, the '80s, and hearing about what are some of the perks for being an executive, and there was always that thing you would hear about the executive washroom, where you didn't have to go mix with the common everyday employees' bathroom. You had an executive washroom. You'd have places where you'd have a shower, where you could, uh, you know, if you were going to be working late or flying out or coming in on the red eye, that became a perk that you'd be able to brag and say. Not only do I have a window office, I've got an executive washroom. Right. Okay. Well, so, we'll, we'll get a little bit to that tomorrow. We talked more about that. Do, so, to me, it doesn't seem weird to say, "Is there a place I can go wash up?" Knowing the time frame we're in, that was a, a a pretty common thing you would expect an executive to have access to. Right. But I also look at it from the perspective that here he's got no luggage with him. All of his luggage is in in the limo with Argyle. Mm-hmm. So it's not like he's going to go take a shower now. He's he's got nothing. He's you know. Let's say he goes to take a shower. He's going to put his his dirty, sweaty clothes back on afterwards. You know, well, even if was... even if they have a towel there, even if they whatever that you know that that's a separate uh, thing. Right. But we'll we'll, no, we'll I, get there I, tomorrow. I, I, okay, I, I always took it as, and we'll yeah we'll continue it tomorrow because I was I always took it as that sort of sponge bath that you can do like when you are a traveler. When I was with IBM for a while. Uh, one of my things was I was almost always on a plane one week or another, and you would just do these like quick, almost like, you know, you take your shirt sleeves up, roll them up, you'd open up, you splash water, you wash your arms down, kind of pat dry and fold, button back up and get back going just to kind of spruce you up be- in, in between flights. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I never thought of it as settling in and going to bed <laughs> or, or, or putting jammies on after. I just always assume when he goes to a place I can wash up, meaning more about, hey, I just need to kind of rinse off a little bit more than just my hands, a place to kind of wash my face, maybe wash my neck, just to, you know, spruce up a little bit. Right. Okay. All right. That, that's fair. So you have anything else you want to say about this minute before we get into the to the script? No, I think we covered the I, – I was definitely coming at it from the, the music. I'm glad you had that in your notes. And then the framing and the distance because even when uh, Bonnie Bedelia comes closer, when we have Holly and John come together for the awkward peck on the cheek – she immediately distances herself back up to not be too close for too long. It's the obligatory, okay, the boss is there, people are there. Uh, I'm going to make the gesture to come in close, kiss, but I'm going to back away still. And if you notice, notice, they're still on the far edges of the frame. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I just, I think camera work here is just this whole movie, I'll, I could talk every day on something about camera work. Yandabant. Yandabant. <laughs> so the the... The, the script has a few discrepancies here. So the first one is is that, you know, part of one of the things that, that, that I always like seeing in the script are the descriptive uh, moments of the script that we obviously, you know, don't hear in the movie, but it tells us what we're supposed to, to be able to see. 
So after Takagi makes the joke about Pearl Harbor, so it says McLean laughs. He likes this guy. You know, mm. and, and, and I like the, the, the way that they, they, they put that in there. You know, it's, it's not needed to be added there, but it says, okay, I see what, what's going on here. And then there's an extended conversation with Holly. When Holly comes in the room, it says the, the door opens, Holly comes inside. All set, Joe. The contracts went over the wire and, and then it says she's surprised and says, John. So like she was expecting, but what's strange is that she's coming to her office. Why is she expecting to see Takagi in her office? Unless she knows that Ellis always goes there to, you know, to to snort his blow, and Takagi usually goes there to pull him out. I don't know. Or maybe just assuming the boss was popping into her office to ask if she'd fax the documents, and just assuming she had just caught him in there looking for her. Right, could be. And then it it has a shot of McLean and Holly. It says, "A moment. Does the sound of the party stop for him? We know it. For her, it's more cryptic. We sure hope so." That's the descriptive way of it. So it's interesting because you don't see that here. You don't see that John is ecstatic to see her and that we're not sure what, what her thoughts are on the whole thing. You know, both of them are leaving things very ambiguous here, you know, about their relationship. So they, mm-hmm. they, they deviate a little bit from there. And then Holly says to him, I was hoping you made that flight. And then John responds and says, I was hoping you were hoping that, which oh, again I'm- would say it, it would it would put John in a completely different position because it basically shows him saying, "Okay, I want you back right now." Well, when you hit, when you see, I look at it different. If you had said, "Well, I was hoping you, I was hoping you were hoping that," means, yeah, see, I was hoping you'd notice how much it was it, you missed me. It makes him feel like he's winning the argument by not saying anything. It still leaves it as you don't know who's going to have the upper hand. Whereas I think it, it would have been too snarky for him to say that. Right. Okay. Then it says she laughs, kisses him on the cheek. Ellis notes the awkwardness. And then Takagi says, your wife's made for this business. She knows how to drive a hard bargain. So hmm. I, I didn't know. I didn't know that this was Jabba the Hutt. I, I always thought that Takagi was, <laughs> was better than Jabba the Hutt. You know? then, oh, my gosh. <laughs> And then McLean oh. responds, <laughs> exactly. Wookiee no bargain. kind of scum and villainy. And then McLean says, yeah, I remember our first date. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm, God. I'm, I'm glad I'm, they, I'm I'm glad they cut that out. With, I'm happy with the compressed what we see on the screen. Yeah. And then you have the whole thing with the, with the watch. And then it says that Ellis takes Holly's wrist and holds it up. And McLean smoothly takes the wrist away from Ellis and then looks at the watch. And then he says, nice, but one of us is three hours out of sync. I think it's me. <laughs> because of the time difference. Oh. Time difference. Right, time I got Yeah. Oh, I got that, but it would have been, it made have, uh, the way John plays it in the on screen, so much better. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, and and the fact that Ellis doesn't—I'd rather Ellis do the try to goad her by saying, "What are you embarrassed?" rather than grab her arm. That would have been all the round. The, the way the script was worded was not only cumbersome, but it would have been an awkward thing to watch. Yeah, completely. And then then it, it finishes off with, uh, "Do you have a place to, to oh, I can watch up?" So, yeah, the the novel doesn't have any of this part in there. There's this this scene in in the office doesn't doesn't take place there. 
So we don't have mm-hmm. anything to talk about there today. So every Thursday we have a segment called Off the Beaten Track, Holiday Edition, where my guest will give a second story about uh, some sort of uh, adventure, misadventure that uh, they might have had at some point over the holiday seasons or any holiday, you know, over the course of the year. So what what have you got for us this time, Alan? One of the things that uh, we did, my wife and I are a blended family. Uh, we both had previous marriages, but then when we got together, we came to it. I had two girls. She had two girls. We instantly had four girls, all staggered stair steps. So they were all, you know, really close together. And one of the things my wife, my, my current wife, Susan, has as a tradition was the family ornament tree. And I had never heard of that. I never we didn't have that sort of tradition. And so I got introduced to it. And every year, Christmas Eve, one of the things we do as a family, no matter what, my wife is like, you can have to, to the kids because they're older. She goes, you can go to anybody else's house for any other holiday. But I get you at Christmas because that's the most important holiday to not only my wife, but to me as well. We feel the same way. And so every Christmas Eve, we've got a tradition where my wife does a themed set of Christmas pajamas that all the kids get. They've been used to getting them since kids, and here they are as adults, and they still look forward to coming here Christmas Eve for their Christmas pajamas, and then they open (laughs) a Christmas ornament. And they're all themed, so they all look very similar, but they may have the, the person's name and the year. And as they open their ornaments... There is a special Christmas tree just in the in the downstairs area that's the family Christmas tree. And it's only got ornaments that were given out to family the day before Christmas or the Christmas Eve. Oh, and so wow. over the years, it's gotten fuller and fuller. And we're at that point now as as in our lives, we're like some of the grandparents have passed on. And when we set the tree up, you can kind of remember, oh, remember the year we had these ornaments and oh, you know, Nana's not with us anymore, you know. Grandpa's not with us anymore, but we still put the ornaments on the tree. And so every year it gets bigger and bigger, but it's a year and a name and a reminder of every Christmas Eve we've spent together. Wow. And how many generations back did that go? My wife was doing it back with her since she was married her first round and had her dad and her mom and her grandmother's ornaments uh, since she got married. So it's not something that, that they did prior, as far as I know, in her mom and dad's era but something my wife did before I even met her, and we've carried that on together since we've been married. And it is one of my favorite Christmas trees to set up simply because every ornament represents someone in our family at on a particular year. Wow. That's such a great story. Thank you. It's really, it's really um, it makes you realize how important family is over stuff. Yeah, because I know everybody gets bent out of shape over getting things and giving things. And did I buy the right thing? Did I get the right size? Oh, my God, I can't find the the hot gift of the season. But when it comes down to it and, and as our kids have gotten older and we have these family conversations, they, too, realize getting things is cool. Don't get me wrong. Nobody minds getting things. But the memories are what we find ourselves talking about. You never find us sitting around the table saying, remember the year I got jeans? Remember the year I got the Nintendo? <laughs> They don't do that. They go, remember the year that we went out back and had to dig for the treasure chest? Or do you remember that year that Sophie fell in the puddle? Or do you, it's all about making memories, making moments and spending time together. And I think that's, uh, that's really for us what the, why the holiday, especially the Christmas holiday is so important. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Thank you very much for that. So you sure. want to tell people once again, how to, how they can get in touch with you or where they we'll can find you. We'll make it quick and easy. 
my buddy Walt Murray and I are our co-hosts on the Wilder Ride. You can go to wilderride.com, do a search for the Wilder Ride under your podcatcher of choice to find the show, and you can find us social media wise, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just look for the Wilder Ride. All right, great. And finding me is also very simple. Just do a quick search for Move Your Out Minute. You can find me on Facebook, you can find me on Twitter, and you can find me on my website. So, Alan, you feel like coming back tomorrow and finishing off the week? Absolutely. Even though it feels like we've been doing this for a week, seriously. Uh, <laughs> it feels like time has taken a while for this to come to come to pass. Apparently, apparently. All right, great. So, until tomorrow, yippee ki yay Yippee-ki-yay! 